It's another blessing that we've each been given to assemble and to gather this night, even as we are at this moment. The appreciation of the song service, the prayer that we have just engaged in together, all have been a very wonderful blessing even at this point. And certainly as we give thought to a lesson, hopefully from the heart of the Old Testament, it too can continue to be a very great benefit to each of us as well. As we did notice this morning in our reading through the Scriptures this year, we now have advanced to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. In fact, we're roughly halfway through that book, or at least very close to it. Tonight's lesson, taken from the 11th chapter of that book, focuses on, in many ways, a very scintillating location. This placement, as you can see on the slide before us, at Kibroth Hateavah, it was a place that no doubt reckoned in the mind of those Israelites a number of stark reminders, things I'm sure they would not soon forget. I hope tonight you and I can be reminded of some of these things too that happened at this unforgettable place, Kibroth Hateva. As we prepare for considering that particular matter, some of these thoughts come before us at the very outset of our lesson this evening. In particular, as we have now advanced to, as you can well tell, somewhat over 18% of our reading through the Word of God, we have already have learned some things about the journeys of the children of Israel. Upon their leaving of Egypt, we well remember that there was a number of Bible books that record for us their journeys through a number of wildernesses. You might recall that some of those encampment sites were very joyous times. There were good remembrances, no doubt. Like at Elim, where there was much water and everything was pleasant and nice. But on the other hand, they journeyed at not a few locations wherein the memories almost surely were a bit on the dark side. I've listed for us three very brief ones. At Rephidim, you may remember there was no water, and they became very angry and upset. Furthermore, we well recall also at Kadesh Barnea that site wherein they rebelled in unbelief against God and had to wander for 38 more years before they would reach the land of milk and honey. As we come tonight to an appreciation of Kibroth Hateva, it too was a location wherein we will find a number of matters that needed to be impressed upon their mind, matters to be embedded within them so that they would not make these mistakes again. I hope as we review what these matters were, we can come to appreciate that their principles are still as needful, just as vital, and in fact ever present today as they were then. As we begin that, starting from the bottom of that slide, you'll notice these matters in Numbers chapter 11 took place at this location, and the word may be a bit difficult to pronounce, but I hope none of us after the lesson tonight will soon forget Kibroth Hateva. To begin that, why don't we proceed? And look at, first of all, the lesson text itself. As we often find ourselves enchanted by the statements of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit has seen fit to leave for us a record of these things that took place. In many ways, you can almost envision that what we have written for us in this that we call Numbers 11 was almost like a diary that was written that detailed what Moses did, what the children of Israel did, and as these matters were recorded, I think we will be impressed in some ways and very saddened in others. You'll notice at the top of that slide, verse number 1 of Numbers chapter 11 does not begin very favorably for the children of Israel. 
The text simply says, And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them, and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. The people were about the business of complaining. We may remember in the chapters that were just previous to this, we had seen God's blessings showered upon them in some ways. We had appreciated the marvelous matter of the sacrifices and the details in Numbers chapter 7. We had come to appreciate in Numbers chapters 9 and 10 the privilege that was theirs of worship. And yet, here in Numbers 11, it begins with their complaining. You may notice it says the Lord heard it. Sometimes we might be of a tendency to forget that God also hears our complaining just as surely as He hears our praise. And when we praise Him in song, that's a lovely sound to Him. But may we never forget that when He hears complaining, that may not be very pleasant. And in fact, His anger might be kindled like it was on this occasion. You'll notice that anger was kindled to the point that in Numbers 11 verse 1 it says that the fire of the Lord burnt among them, and it consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. That word uttermost indicates in the original language that these were portions of the camp that were on the very outskirts, the ones that were living the furthest from the center of camp, the ones that were living the furthest, if you please, from the tabernacle. The fire of God began to burn in that location. It would seem to indicate they were the primary ones responsible for the complaining. It would also indicate that what's about to take place in the verses that follow is a constant reminder about the importance of events like this. You'll notice in verse number 2 it says, The people cried unto Moses, and when the people prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. Moses prayed unto the Lord, and we find that fire was abated. The actual meaning of that original word means to, in fact, abate. And that fire was taken care of by the greatness and the premise of God. In verse number 3, he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. Immediately you can tell that here was a name utilized to describe this location. And that word, by the way, Taborah, it means burning. It was often the case the children of Israel gave names to locations that were reminiscent of what major event happened there. And on not a few occasions, the event was a bad one. Burning was the name they gave to this place because the fire of God burned in the uttermost portions of the camp. It is with those things in mind, verse number 4 takes us to the next element of the chapter. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? The mixed multitude, the careful way in which that verse begins, we notice that these, again identified that way, it says they fell a-lusting. They were prompted by this desire for something material, they not only had a wish for it, they actually lusted in an overt fashion relative to this. And isn't it amazing that verse proceeds to describe that the children of Israel fell victim to behaviors that were very unpleasant. It says the children of Israel also wept again. I'd invite you to notice the careful way that language is written. It says the children of Israel also, so in addition... 
we learn now the mixed multitude was yearning and in fact lusting after flesh. The children of Israel as a whole fell victim to the same. And you'll notice it says the word again is present. This isn't the first time that they had wept like this. Back in Exodus chapter 16, we remember there was a former occasion in which not too long after coming out of Egypt, they too begged God for meat and flesh. The manna wasn't enough. As they, in fact, began with a very great mindset to plead for those things, God said, I'll give you flesh, and He gave them quail. Here we find a, little, a few months later, the people were now in the same predicament again. They wanted flesh to eat. Isn't it interesting in verses 5 and following, we have some statements that the people made. We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Their minds seem so vivid with respect to certain things in Egypt. They could remember the fish and the onions and the garlic and the cucumbers and the melons. Isn't it interesting? They forgot and their backs were beaten bare by those Egyptians making them make bricks without straw. Interesting how one's memory can be so selective, isn't it? And yet as they remembered the fish and the food and the flesh in Egypt, you notice that verses 7 and following give us a very precious description of that manna. It is the case as you proceed beyond that in verses 10 and following. We notice very interestingly that there was some features and characteristics that readily come to our mind. I'd invite you to notice that a protest apparently was organized. It would seem in verses 10 and following that an organized protest, bringing the matter before Moses and in fact before the so-called leaders of Israel, was, was taking place. Notice, we started the chapter with them complaining. Now we've advanced to them lusting after flesh, and now they organize an official protest against Moses and against God. Oh, what audacity these people had. What nerve to make an affront unto God, an official, regulated protest. You'll notice beyond all of that, it says in verses 10 and following, that Moses was displeased. The very last word of verse number 10. Can you imagine Moses' heart sinking when he understands how good God had been to them, how often He had blessed them, and now here they are organizing an official protest. Moses was displeased. Furthermore, you'll notice beyond that, God was angry. The wording of verse number 10 and 11 indicates again the anger of God was noticeably kindled. As you come to the next slide with me and look at some of these additional features about the events that took place at Kibroth Hatteva, we find God answering the people's demand. God said, beginning in verse 18, I will give you flesh. His exact words were this. And say thou unto the people, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh. For ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. Ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days. 
but even a whole month until it come out at your nostrils, and it be loathsome unto you, because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? Fascinating, isn't it, to notice God's reminder, his statement to Moses? He said, You tell the people, I'll give you flesh, all right. I'll give you so much flesh, it's going to come out your nostrils. You're going to be sick and tired of it by the time I'm done. Isn't it amazing that we learn something very vital about our request, our demand of God? Isn't it true in the verses that so rapidly follow? You notice that we find interestingly the following statements. God caused a wind to bring up quail. We're now reading in verse 31 and following the lesson text that was read just a moment ago. As Eddie read that for us, it says, And there went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea. And let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. And the people stood up all that day and all that night, and all the next day they gathered the quails. He that gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And he called the name of that place Kibroth Hatteva, because there they buried the people that lusted. The thunderous last verse that we just read is part of this chapter we ought never to quickly forget. As you and I began to put the remainder of these pieces together, you'll notice that God indeed fulfilled His promise to them. He brought an east wind, and there fell around this camp a tremendous number of quails. You'll notice that they were so thick on the ground, they were a full one yard high. Can you imagine the people coming and with such excitement finding quails piled three feet deep? As they arrived and found them, they noticed that the one that gathered least gathered ten homers. That's over 62 bushels. Over 62 bushels of quail were gathered by everyone that gathered any. And you'll notice rather quickly in verses 32 and 33, the text says that they spread them abroad for themselves. We now have the picture before us of a selfish frenzy. The people were one by another, it seems, quickly picking up as many quail as they could, saving it for themselves, hoarding it for their own usefulness. And they began to partake of it, and ere it was even between their teeth. We notice in verse 33 that the fire of God, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled, and we notice a great plague began to overwhelm them. Finally, you notice in verse 34, another name was given to this specific place of encampment, Kibroth Hateva. The reason being in verse 34, it says there they buried the people that lusted. We can imagine there was some number of the children of Israel given to this lusting attitude, and as the quail were discovered and found, they began to partake in it with such materialistic selfishness. And as they did so, that lust developed within them to the point that now we see the plague of God overwhelming them, and they died. In fact, we've now come to the perfect time to make mention of the meaning of the word kibroth Again, a fancy long word, but it just means graves of lust. It's a constant reminder that they buried the ones given to lust. 
maybe tonight as we reflect from this point forward about some principles or lessons that you and I might use for ourselves, it is the case that we've seen many things developed in this chapter, and let's select a few of them and cast a spotlight on them from this point forward. These graves of lust may be the first thing that overwhelms us beginning from the opening saga of the chapter is the very attitude of the complaining characteristic of the children of Israel. We have often, since the day we noted God's call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, we have seen so many special instances in which they were blessed with such bountifulness. And now we've come to the location in which we find them complaining. Isn't it interesting how often we find in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy verbs used in sentences like this. The people murmured. The people complained. The people were displeased. Time and again we seemingly find this attribute of the children of Israel. Moses on occasion, because of that murmuring attitude, even he often became overwhelmed in displeasure. He was beside himself and even approached God more than once. What do I do with this people? I can't bear the burden myself. We find, in fact, that their complaining attitude developed on this occasion. God heard their complaining, and didn't we notice a moment ago that the fire of God burned in the uttermost parts of the camp? Maybe we can at least impressively consider, again, this attribute of complaining. Isn't it true that quite often complaining and complaining and murmuring often develops in a group of people an attitude of dissimulation, an attitude, quite frankly, of a broken spirit. It's hard to get eager and enthusiastic to work with a group of people, isn't it, that are given to complaining. Everything that's done, there's a problem with it. Everything that's approached, here's a good reason not to do it. Everything that is attempted or pursued, you know I could have done that better because here's what you did wrong. And there's one complaint after another. And that kind of complaining attitude, it seems, enveloped the children of Israel on this occasion. First, it began with that mixed multitude in the outermost parts of the camp. But then we noticed in verse 4, it came to envelop much of the children of Israel. It may be that that complaining leads us to notice that the Bible calls that kind of complaining evil. But the Bible calls it sinful. Sometimes we lose sight of verses like 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 10, that cast the spotlight on the evilness of their complaining and the characteristic by which it brought to bear things like what's before us in the lesson text this evening. You'll notice that complaining is also mentioned in Jude verse 16 as well as Philippians chapter 2. And in both those particular places we're reminded, do nothing with complaining. In other words, complaining should be a far distant part of that which ought to be the means of the Christian life. If there's an issue or problem, you and I can deal with it without complaining. To complain means to always mention without making any positive strides for solution. That's the heart and soul of complaining, isn't it? To always murmur, to always paint a pity statement of woe is me, but without making any positive progress or statement toward solving it. That was the lot of the children of Israel. May we pause for a moment and say this. 
If God had blessed them with flesh, namely with quail back in Exodus 16, if they had approached God in humble petition of prayer, isn't it reasonable to think He would have blessed them again with quail? There would have been no need to complain the way they did. There would have been no need to jump, if you please, upon Moses and regulate an official protest against him and God. Their complaining veered far astray from faith in the God of heaven. And for that, for that, the fire of God burned among them. Can't, can't we see then that complaining can still redound unto a very, very terrible set of activities? You'll notice in light of this matter of complaint, it's time to look at the mixed multitude, idea number two. You notice with me in verse number four, mention is made of the mixed multitude, and the Holy Spirit is very careful to mention these individuals. Who were these mixed multitude? It seems clear they were not the core part of the children of Israel, the mixed multitude we have found mentioned on a few occasions since the days of Exodus 12, verse 38. Those individuals who were living on the outskirts of the children of Israel, those who weren't full Hebrews, those who were just tagging along for the benefits and the blessings, those who were basically just along for the journey. The mixed multitude, notice, were the ones in verse number 4 that fell a-lusting first. Maybe it's in light of that that these ideas come before us. Isn't it significant that it would appear that the problem instigated with them? Indeed, the problem began with their falling away after a means of lust, and now they're encouraging the rest of the children of Israel. Perhaps many of us have experienced what sometimes can occur around the proverbial water cooler at work. Someone makes a statement that's unfounded, but word spreads like a prairie grass fire, and soon everybody thinks the same way. And everybody says, did you hear? Did you, did you understand? Could you believe what he did, what she did? When all the while, none of it's the truth. The mixed multitude began to strongly desire some flesh. We've had all this manowing stand. And so things start spreading and they agitate some desire and they begin to, in fact, work one by one. And as that develops, soon the whole children of Israel, at least a large number of them, fell into the prey as well. You'll notice as that particular idea sets before us, isn't it interesting that there can also be mixed multitudes today? Think about the church. We realize that there are those whose heart and soul is embedded in the church. They give their life for it. And I'm sure I speak before many tonight that would readily do the same. We love the church. The blood of our Savior bought it. It means everything to us. We know that there's no entrance to heaven without it. Ephesians 5.23 We understand that nothing in this life pale is, is such that it's superior in meaning and importance and significance to the church. And yet, we also know that there are those who live on the outskirts. They attend some services every now and then. Rarely are they ever involved in the programs, though. They don't have time for that. There are those who are quick to make their suggestions and ideas, but they aren't involved in the work for their heart's not in it. You see, they are the mixed multitude. 
they are the ones that are the first almost always to complain. The temperature is too hot. Benches are not soft enough. The regulation of other matters, the preacher preaches too long. The song service wasn't spirited enough, and so by the time they get to the house, they have preacher for dinner and everybody else. Cutting everybody up, first one way and then the other. You see, they're the ones complaining. They live on the outskirts. The church doesn't mean that much to them. They just want to be affiliated with it. You'll notice affiliation with the church won't save you. One must be a faithful member of it and given to its cause and a laborer in the vineyard. We sang about that a moment ago. As you give thought to some of those features at the top of that slide, isn't it interesting that so often Paul and other New Testament individuals faced the so-called mixed multitude in the church? In Romans 14, we notice in particular, verse 17, that the kingdom of our Lord is not meat and drink and things like that, but it's joy and holiness and righteousness. And it is that to which our attention as members of the body of Christ must be turned. You'll notice also in passages like 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, that godliness is such a high matter of consideration. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Perhaps finally, you'll notice that text I would call to your attention in Philippians 4.11, the matter of contentment as it translates to godliness. Paul was such a powerful example of that, wasn't he? You'll notice as you come to that last idea, Isn't it true that when it comes to these that are of this so-called mixed multitude, Paul had some words for Titus. You see, Titus was one who was stationed in this location, and he often, too, had to deal with those who were not as spiritually minded as they ought to have been. Do you remember some of the advice that Paul gave Titus? It was to him, he said, after the first and second admonition, you reject that factious man. You encourage him, you instruct him, you teach him, but after a couple of times, if he won't listen, he is of that multitude that ought to be rejected. Isn't it interesting that you see, even in that first century era, there were those that may well have existed amongst the mixed multitude. Maybe in light of that, it brings us to what may prompt the motivation of some in that arena. Materialism. The children of Israel, as well as that mixed multitude, They were here in a position that the manna that God gave them six days a week so faithfully, manna that they, as the text tells us, had learned to cook and bake and fix in almost any number of ways. For the mixed multitude, that wasn't enough. We want flesh to eat. Who's going to give us flesh to eat? You'll notice all along that God never told them they couldn't hunt quail. They seemingly weren't of a disposition to go get it themselves. They were too lazy for that. They wanted it given to them. You'll notice that that kind of matter dwelt problems among them. Materialism was a serious problem. Look at some of these ideas, some of these brief reflections with me if you would. The materialism of the Israelites in this consideration they began themselves to desire at least quail to the point they were a part of that organized protest. They were a part of opposing both Moses and God. As God's anger kindled amongst them, note these comments. Isn't it amazing what questions they were willing to ask? 
Who's going to give us flesh to eat? Verse 4. Did you note that question that was asked later as well in verse 13? Give us flesh that we may eat. They now have advanced to the point not just of requesting it, but demanding it. Isn't that often what happens when someone is materialistically motivated? They are willing to be far more arrogant and far more demanding than someone who humbly recognizes the nature of blessings of this life. Perhaps in fairness to that, we can note that final thought. As they made that set of demands, doesn't it remind us today that we do live on this earth and we are needful of its blessings, but may we never allow them to be the sole guide to that which is our way of life. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lusts thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. As Paul and others addressed those points and made comments about them, we're reminded, as we often sing in that lovely old Christian hymn, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. We're journeying elsewhere. We're looking for that location and place wherein the Son of God Himself is now there. Revelation 14, 4. It might well be in light of those things that we arrive at this next element. Statement number four. We have noticed it more than once in the lesson tonight, but perhaps it's time to consider it more thoroughly. The ungratefulness of the children of Israel. We've commented previously that they were given these blessings. Previously they had enjoyed quail. They had seen water come from a rock more than once. They had seen the Red Sea part for them to cross through it on dry ground. They had witnessed time and again the provision and protection of God. And now, in an ungrateful display, they arrogantly demand what they could easily have humbly requested of Him. And in this demand that they make, the fire of God comes to burn. And we notice eventually some statements that we have even seen that led to the death of many of them. Ungratefulness. Sheer unthankfulness. These people exhibited it on this occasion. May you and I think for just a moment about the avenue of what they had seen. We commented about that banner. They had seen that and witnessed it for six days a week for so long now. And isn't it true that that manna is described later in Psalm 78 as angel's food? They had been privileged to partake of that which literally bore the description of the food of angels. And yet on this occasion, they were so unthankful and ungrateful even for it. May I say that what a great sin it is when you and I stoop to unthankfulness, when we aren't appreciative of the blessings that God has so lavishly given us. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, James 1.17. We notice there there's no shadow of turning with God. He's constant, He's loving, He's merciful, and He's gracious, and He is a providing God. Isn't it true that Jesus used that point Himself in Matthew chapter 7? Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. 
Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and every one that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 7. You and I serve in a God who is desirous of providing for you and for me, and He will even provide blessings that we might call luxury on, on occasion. And as He does, how marvelously thankful we can be. The children of Israel are a timeless lesson of what can happen when one's unthankful. Several per verses in the New Testament encourage us to be thankful. In Ephesians 5, verse number 20, we are told to be thankful for all things, giving thanks unto God. In Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Perhaps that avenue of thankfulness leads us to that passage we can so often see in Philippians chapter 4. In the sixth verse of that chapter, wasn't it Paul who said, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. If only the children of Israel had fallen prey to that idea. With thanksgiving and earnestness, let your requests be, not be made known. God cares. The children of Israel, you see, strayed greatly from where they should have been. It may well be in light of all of that that we come to the fifth and final observation of the lesson tonight. The answer God gave them to their request. In many ways, we could say that they did make a request of God. They demanded more than once, give us flesh to eat. They made a demand of God. One ought to be awfully careful when you make demands of God. You might just get what you demanded and you might regret the day you asked for it. That's what happened in this case, wasn't it? They demanded flesh and God said, I'll give you flesh all right. Not just one day or two days or even 20 days or even a month's worth. I'll give you so much flesh that it's literally going to become a very unfavorable thing to you. That language we noted in verses 18 through 20 highlight what God promised, and He fulfilled it, didn't He? The quails came, and they were a full one yard thick around that camp, and the people became so enamored and excited, they gathered it and selfishly spread it out for themselves. And when they did, they began to partake of it in such number and in such materialistic fervor that we notice in verse number 33 that the wrath of God began to boil amongst them. The exact language is again as follows. The wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. As the people lusted after that flesh, and they began to partake of it, you'll notice at the very bottom, this was clearly a trial that God sent before the children of Israel. It was a test. That mixed multitude had already failed one test, and now we've noticed many of the children of Israel did along with them. But now God gave them this large amount of quail. In what way did they begin to participate in it? Well, we notice that God sent a plague amongst them. But isn't it interesting? It says in verse number 33, they buried the people that lusted. Not everyone in Israel lusted after the quail, but some of them did. It would seem that those that did not lust after it, their lives weren't lost at Kibroth Hateva. They perhaps 
captured or took a number of quails and partook of them in an acceptable way, thankfully, appreciatively. But there were some who were so enamored with the materialism that the plague of God took their lives. At this point, might we notice, Psalm 106 verse 15 makes a later reflection on this event. We mentioned earlier in the lesson tonight, they ought never to have forgotten Kibroth Hatteva. And centuries later, as the inspired writer David reflected back on this, he says, God sent leanness into their souls. He gave them quail all right, but sent leanness into their souls. They were individuals who had departed after the ways of materialism and forgotten the God that gave all this. And when they did, that leanness developed in them, and this plague ultimately cost them their lives. You'll also notice in amongst that idea, more than once in the Bible there were individuals who in fact turned aside from God and asked of God what they really ought never have asked. Ought never have asked. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, they asked for a king and God gave them what they asked for. But later as a reflection on that event in Hosea 13, 11, God says, I gave them a king in mine anger and I took him away in my wrath. God gave them exactly what they asked for, but I'm sure they regretted more than once having ever asked for one. Same here, they asked for flesh, but I wonder how many after they buried their loved ones at Kibroth Hatteva wished they'd never have asked for it. Perhaps finally you'll notice that you and I then ought to be very mindful and very careful as we petition the God of heaven as well. Never to do so with demand, but always in loving character to appreciate past blessings. But furthermore, to understand that we are admonished in the New Testament to pray according to the will of God. To pray according to God's will. James chapter 4 verses 3 and 4. When you and I then ask amiss, that's often when we might well get what we ask for and we might sorely regret the day we do. I might suggest as we close that, perhaps the example of Jesus is ever so appropriate. In Matthew chapter 6, as we read that sometimes, which is called the model prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Notice the Lord began that prayer with an emphasis on the will of God. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Isn't it interesting that when you and I pray that way, a scene like Kibroth Hatteva will never happen in your life and mine. It is the case as we come near the close of this lesson, you'll notice these comments, these final remarks. It was a rather stirring scene at this place. Again, the word means graves of lust. What a sad day it was in Kibroth Hatteva when they allowed materialism to rule the day and when they made demands of God and begged and beseeched what they would later regret. I hope you and I won't fall victim to Kibroth Hatteva, but that you and I shall not be those given to complaining, that we shall be individuals that are not given to materialism, that we are individuals who appreciate the nature of prayer and ask according to the will of God. If we shall do these things, the mixed multitude that does exist won't be a troublesome matter to us. And finally, we can appreciate the joyful enterprise of serving the Lord faithfully throughout life. This very night, as you and I analyze ourselves, are you and I in position to have learned some valiant lessons from the scene here? 
I trust that we can be strengthened and motivated to be faithful servants of the Lord. Tonight, if you aren't a member of His kingdom, a faithful servant in the vineyard of God, maybe some of these have been problems. Maybe you have heard folks complain. Let me assure you, don't let the complaining of some steer you away from the faithfulness of many others. There are those in the church who tend to be somewhat hypocritical. Don't let them steer you away from the faith you can know. Also, when you hear about an existence of a mixed multitude, understand maybe your example could be one to help them draw closer to the Lord. The plan of salvation demands that you believe Jesus, you repent of your sins, you confess His name as a Son of God, and you be baptized. If tonight we can help you in that way, we'd be delighted to do it. If you have known the way of faithfulness but have steered from it, Maybe you've become victim to some of what happened at Kibroth Hateva. Why not make things right with your God tonight? Come back to your first love in the words of Revelation 2.5 and be ready to be put on that pathway of eternal glory if you'll remain faithful until death. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to you in a public way, in any way, won't you let us know while together we stand and while we sing.